there's a cupcake. I can't eat this cupcake while I do this. Let's try it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. We're not going to do that. All right. So I cut the sermon in half last night at about 10. It's, but it's still too long. So let's... Um, if you have a Bible, what you do, because there's one right in front of you, um, go ahead and turn it to Mark chapter 12. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'm going to read in just a minute, verses 18 and following, after I give a little introduction. Um, some of you know that I don't speak right. I know on, on multiple levels, haha, that's funny. But um, I like literally don't speak talk right, and it's, it's bad for my voice, and I squeeze my vocal cords and all that kind of thing. It's one of the reasons why my voice sounds kind of like Mickey Mouse rather than like, you know, some kind of deep preacher voice. So that's just the way it is. But so my, this was my first week where I actually went to voice therapy, which was a moderately humiliating experience. I'd say it's moderately humiliating. Um, let me see if my slides work. Okay, awesome. Okay, I think that may be totally the wrong, yeah, that's, that's the wrong PowerPoint. So if you can load the other one, great, it'd be awesome. If not, that's okay, too. Um, so, um, so I go into this, um, this uh, thing. We'll just call my, um, my instructor Sarah, since I didn't give you, get permission to tell you her name. And so <clears throat> I'm sitting with her, and she's like 26 or something, which is like, I'm old enough now to like be annoyed at people's youth if they're young enough, okay? <laughs> so, because I'm like, you know, if I've got a decade on you, there's going to be a little bit of that, you know? So, you know, she's like 26 or something, and she, there's no doctor in front of her name, and she's just like this little mousy, like, voice major, you know? And um, so, I'm, you know, I'm sitting down, I'm like, okay, so let's do this. And so um, we started doing these drills, and there, it went from moderately humiliating to pretty darn humiliating. So um, for like 35, 35 times, at this, Mimi PP. I promise this isn't obscene. This is a voice thing, okay? And so we get like 35 times later, and I'm like, uh, you know, I'm just doing it because she's telling me what to do, and I'm, that's all. You, that's all. What can you do? So like, and then she's like, okay, try this. Meet me, Peter, at the peak. Meet me. I could have been saying that the whole time. You had me sing meet me, pee pee for like 12 minutes, right? And so it, it I mean, and it was, and the thing about, it's like she can't actually tell me what to do. You just have to feel it. So she kept saying, you just have to feel it. Just try it. Me, me, pee, pee. I'm just thinking, I'm saying me, me, pee, pee. I'm not feeling anything. And I'm, she's like, you just got to feel it. It's just like a combination of the wax on, wax off thing from the Karate Kid and Luke Skywalker with the blast shield down trying to block the lasers. You know, it's just like, don't trust your feelings. Or no, don't trust, trust your, I don't have feelings. I'm an analytical person. In fact, I'm mad that you even insinuated that I had them. So, you know, but the reality is, though, is that I don't know anything about voice therapy. I have no idea how to fix myself, and I have to fix myself. So look, I don't, I don't have any choice but to just accept she's the teacher, I'm the student, she knows what she's doing, I've got to listen, and I need to do what I'm told. And I need to go home, and I need to practice just like she told me to. And so if you see me driving around with a Bluetooth in my ear, I'm not on a phone call. I'm just trying to make it not look crazy. Then I'm humming and saying, me, me, pee, pee all over Madison. <laughs> I just tell my charismatic friends I'm speaking in tongues. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> They're not here. Um, okay, so, 
One of the things I tried to make clear last week, and I want to drill down a little further to, into this week, is that Mark 12 is all about Jesus taking the role of teacher for himself and claiming it for all time among all people, okay? So the whole chapter, you have the three major teaching groups in the New Testament, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the teachers of the law. These are the law experts. These are the people who teach on behalf of God. And in this chapter, he comes and he takes back their right to be the teacher, and he says, I have that right. I'll give it to whomever I please because I will ultimately be the teacher. I am the teacher. And you have to be the student. And the first step of this teacher-student relationship isn't going to be a whole lot of content. It's going to be you learning what a student is. Which I think is really helpful because what these teachers had to learn is the same thing virtually every modern American has to learn because we all think we're teachers. And we are completely disconnected from the normal relationship of teacher and student where the teacher has the right to be the teacher and we need to shut up and be the student. We don't, we don't have any relationship like that past adolescence in America, right? When you're a college student, you still get to be like, well, what about, uh, even if you don't know anything, even in high school, that's cool now, right? You can be a junior high kid and you can like tell your economics teacher he's totally wrong. And you're like 12. And that's, you know, a little disruptive. Not a big deal. It's, but it's not considered stupidity, right? Because that's just, we're just not used to the idea of the teacher's the teacher. We're the student. We've got to learn. We're going to have to, we're going to have to open, be open-minded towards the teacher. And we're going to have to have some humility to be able to receive from the teacher. Or it's not going to happen. It has nothing to do with knowledge. It has everything to do with the psychological parts of learning, not the, the, the content or intellectual parts of learning. All right, so let me read this passage and then tell you where I'm going with that. This is the second episode in these three episodes in Mark 12. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. And it was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising... Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. All right, let me catch up here. Thanks for loading that, guys. All right. One of the problems here is Jesus is trying to draw these people who think of themselves as teachers. Now put in you there, in me, right? We tend to think of, we think of ourselves as teachers, and you, you know that by how openly you listen to those instructing you. You don't listen very openly. You go, oh, I'll take what I want, leave what I want, whatever, right? And Jesus is saying to these guys, he's saying, listen, you, your, um, the psychological parts of your process of knowing are messed up. And because of that, even though in terms of knowledge and content, you're on the side of research, you're extremely accomplished, 
you've come to totally wrong conclusions because in the area of your ability to imagine the truth and in your, your actual moral virtues of the mind, those aren't, those aren't working. So you can't imagine big enough and you're not humble enough to see what's there. So all of your ac- sort of accomplishment and content has only served because of the failure in these faculties to lead you away. And so if, if you want me to be the teacher, if you want to get back on track, he's telling these folks, if you want to get back on track, you're going to have to come to me as the teacher. You're going to have to let me reopen your mind and help rehabilitate your spiritual imagination. And you're going to have to have enough humility to be teachable. If those two things don't happen, salvation, truth, can't happen. Okay? Can't happen. That's what he's saying. And one of the things we need to recognize is it's not just moral—the point of the gospel isn't just moral change. The point of the gospel is a complete human transformation on every level, right? It says it this way in Romans 12, 2. He's speaking to the church, and he says to him, he says, listen, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, right? And you could, you could think that's just behavior, right? The next line is, but, as in instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's psychological, right? That's in your head. Now, it's going to work out in your behavior, right? But he's saying, something's got to happen in here and in here for anything to happen with these, Right? Now, the, the inescapable implication of this is that if Jesus is the teacher, and Jesus is the one we're, we're having to believe in, he's the Son of Man, he's the Son of God, he is the Messiah, he's the one God has sent to do this work of salvation and instruction, then if he's the teacher and we're going to believe in him, that means we have to become teachable. We're going to have to figure out what that means, and we're going to have to apply it, not just in the area of research and how much we read our Bibles, or whether or not we go to an ABF class, or whether we come to church and listen to preaching attentively, or whatever research-wise, but in these other areas that are often overlooked of reopening our mind to God in terms of our imagination, and secondly, becoming humble enough to really be teachable. Okay, so that's bad timing. All right, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Let's do that. Okay, so for the next, here's what I want to do. I want to split that up into two weeks. I'm going to use the next passage in Mark 12 to talk about the whole issue of humility and becoming teachable. So I think that one handles it pretty well, and I think it'll be helpful. So I'll, the next two passages, we'll talk about that. And this one I want to talk about um, being open-minded toward God and allowing the teacher to rehabilitate our imagination so that we can actually start to think like Christians, okay? Um, it'll be more fun than it sounds. So, the, so one of the things that has to happen, one of the things the teacher is after is a God-focused imagination. Now, one of the things I think we should be able to know without much thought is that a mind imaginatively open to the right things is really important. Almost every gain in the history of humanity came from some, a, a jump forward, usually not in somebody's research, but in somebody's ability to conceive of things other than the way they already are, right? So Newton is, 
I don't know if this really happened, right? But he's supposedly sitting under an apple tree and he gets hit by an apple and, and something happens conceptually, right? An apple falling and hitting you, that's not research, right? That's not a big data set that you can crunch and go, no, it's, it's, it hit him and then he's like thinking about it and then it becomes a mental metaphor that opened his mind to con- conceptualize physics in a new way and a leap forward happened in physics that lasted for a few hundred years, right? And that's kind of how these things jump forward. Science isn't just a, we crunch numbers and they just bring out truth. No, you get facts, but then imagination is necessary to create new conceptualizations to jump forward. Imagination is necessary, and not just in science, but in everything, in every form of knowledge, Research is important in every form of knowledge, and in every form of knowledge, imagination is important. Every form of knowledge. And so to begin to be Christians, just reading the Bible won't do it. You have to take what you get from the Bible, and it has to happen—something has to happen. Something has to be put together. You have to get a conception of what God is like. And if that conception is as low as sentences, it's— it's not going to capture your heart. It's not going to change your mind. It's not going to do anything. If, if your mind doesn't expand enough and your heart doesn't grow enough to go, oh my gosh, this God that I'm reading about right here is like this. There's going to be no real transformation of mind. It won't happen. It can't happen. Um, and, and you can just think about it this way. This is the one thing Disney has right. Right? Imagination is important. Now, one thought experiment for this— um, about open-mindedness. Because here's what I think. I think, therefore, imaginative open-mindedness is very important. But here's the thing. I think we have some really weird ideas about open-mindedness in American culture. Um, One way to do a thought experiment with this is eating igunak. Now, do you know, is it, do you know what igunak is? Okay, so igunak is when Inuit people kill a walrus, okay? They take blubber, meat, and hide— and they make these little bundles. You see at his feet there, there's like this like tube, tube-like bundle. And they like sew it up with the hide from the walrus. So it's all walrus, okay? And then they take it home. And you know how like for six months of the year, it's sun all the time? So they bury it in this sh- little shallow grave and put rocks on it. And the sun just kind of heats it up for six months, okay? And then when it gets cold, and, you know, you can't catch fish as much, you know, they'd come back and dig it up, and they'd slice it, and they'd eat six-month-old rotting blubber, hide, and walrus flesh, okay? It's considered an Inuit delicacy um, called igunak. So, so the question is, you know, as good open-minded people, how should we be open-minded towards igunak, right? So there's at least three ways you could be open-minded towards igunak. You could say, one, you could be informationally open-minded, right? You could say, what's igunak? And somebody could explain it to you, and you could be like, you know, um, you know, what's, what's the good liberal word to say when you, you don't want to say anything pejorative, but you hate it, and you just want to be totally neutral? What do you say? That's interesting, right? You say interesting. That's interesting. Wow. Right? So that's what you you just say. That's interesting. And you just go, oh my gosh. Right? Okay. So then the second way you could be open-minded would be open-minded by experience. You could say, okay, well, I'll try it. Right? Hmm. I'll try it. So you eat a little bit of it and you either throw up or you don't, you know, and you just say, hmm, that's, that's an interesting flavor. Right? Um, or the third way you could be open-minded towards it is, is to be open-minded in terms of acceptance or approval. You could, no matter what it tastes like, no matter whether you like it or not, no matter how violently you throw up, you like it. 
okay? You like it. So you're like, mm, I, oh, that ego neck. Yeah, I threw up this time, but that's, that's, that was a great idea. Whoever came up with that, you know, global diversification of food sources, right? It's, that's some local food there now. That's within 20 miles. That's going to leave a low carbon footprint, and that is going to do some good for the intestines in the long run. So I like it, right? Look, I have a garden. Save my own rainwater, okay? I'm playing both sides of the aisle, so don't, don't think I'm playing sides. Anyway, the point is, the point is, is that there are, we just say open-minded, but we mean very different things. We could mean very different things by it, right? And here's, here's my point. My point is not about how we should be open-minded. Here's my point. My point is, we find it relatively easy to be the third kind of open-minded to an enormous amount of things. Socially moral things, fashion things, all those, all kinds of things, okay? People put plates in their heads so they look like Klingons and put sticks through their face and we're like, that's really interesting, right? Or all kinds of social stuff that we know is going to blow, blow things up in the future. We just go, that's really interesting. And we just, we're real open-minded towards it. And listen, I'm not commenting on that. Here's what, I, here's what I'm going to say in response to it. Are, we, are you that open-minded imaginatively towards God? When you have a mental or emotional problem, question that you can't solve, that's difficult, and you're like, eh, what's going on here? Do you act open-mindedly towards God and open your imagination to all the th- possibilities of how God could be great in your difficult question? Or do you, are you really good at being open-minded one toward three towards everything in your life except God? See, I think no matter how open-minded we should or shouldn't be towards any other thing, I think we should at least be consistent in how open-minded we are towards God. And what I find in practice is that most people are very open-minded in the construction of their mental problems. They spend enormous amount of imaginative energy on how difficult their theological problem is, and then very little emotional energy in figuring out how God is right in it. And I'm just saying, that's hypocritical. But if this biblical passage is any, any answer, it's apparently universally human. That that's what we will all naturally do because we're sinful self-justifiers. Okay, so let me, let me take you through the Sadducees thing and then I want to circle back around for an application, okay? So Deuteronomy 25, 5-6 says this. This is the passage the Sadducees are quoting, okay? When they say, Moses said this, this is the passage they're quoting. If brothers, now brother there is a wider term to, to, clan, to clan, okay? So it could be your immediate sibling. It could be the next closest relative, okay? Um, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family or clan, his, her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay? I know that, seems, I know that sounds weird. Okay, just hang with me for about five minutes, okay? Um, the social arrangement referred to in Deuteronomy 25, 5-6 is a social arrangement called leveret marriage. Okay, it requires a brother to marry his deceased brother's wife in order to provide children to carry on his name and material provision for the deceased brother's wife. Okay, leveret marriage, unlike polygamy and concubinage, um, was not created for the purpose of allowing men to have more than one wife for the purposes of sexual indulgence. The point of this command is not 
to have more women, okay? Whereas, whereas you can look at polygamy and particularly concubinage and be like, that's just patriarchy kind of gone nutty. Um, Leverett marriage is not like that. And in fact, one of the proofs of that is if you look at the two passages that shows up in the Bible, um, in both cases, the storyline is this. The man tries to get out of his responsibility and God acts so that the woman is taken care of. That's what happens in both cases, in really weird ways. Particularly the first one, Genesis 28. You want to read something weird? Read that passage, okay? But to show you how ingrained the moral nature of this was in the ancient mind, was in Genesis 28, um, this patriarch named Judah has a son named Ur, his firstborn son named Ur, and he marries her off to this girl named Tamar, okay? Um, it says in Genesis 28 that Ur was a wicked man and God took his life. No idea specifically, but Ur dies. Tamar doesn't have any kids. So it's Onan's job to marry her, right? You're terrified what I'm going to say, right? Because you know the Onan thing is people talk about masturbation with that, right? You're like, what's he going to say? Yeah, well, just wait. I'm going to say something weird, I promise. Um, So Onan, the second-born son, it's his job to marry Tamar and to have children so that his brother's inheritance and name can be carried on and Tamar can be taken care of. But what it says is, that Onan wants the pleasure, but not the responsibility, right? He has sex with her, but he doesn't leave the goods, is what it says in a discreet way. So she's not going to have children, but he gets to have sex with her. The issue here is the moral and sociological injustice of taking pleasure in a woman who has nothing and not giving her the security that it's his responsibility to give her. So what happens? God strikes him dead. So he dies too. So Judah's like, I'm not giving my third son to that woman, right? Because he's got a third son. And he's like, he's too young to get married. He can't marry you. So just, you know, go back to your father's house and mourn, right? So she does. So, so Tamar is living in her dad's house, right? Her dad is probably not going to outlive her. So when he dies, what's she going to be? Destitute, right? It's the whole purpose of having children in the ancient world. There's no social security. Nobody's going to take care of you if you don't have children, right? So... And she can't marry somebody else. Nobody else wants to marry a slightly older, twice-widowed woman. Okay? Not going to happen. So her only hope is to marry this guy. So it doesn't happen. So finally she's like, okay, it's, he's not, he's not going to do this. You know what she does? She dresses up like a prostitute, like all veiled and everything. And she goes up to where she knows Judah, the father-in-law, is going to be bringing some of his sheep to shear them. Right? So Judah goes up there and she, he sees a hooker and he goes, you know, I'm here shearing sheep. I was hanging out with a hooker. So he goes over and says, how much? Right? And they make this little arrangement. He's going to pay a go, but he doesn't have a go. So he's going to give her his staff with his like seal and stuff on it that he can be recognized by. And then later he'll send the goat and they'll trade back. So he goes in and has sex with her, right? And then she disappears. Right? And so then she becomes, all of a sudden she's pregnant, right? She's supposed to be this morning widow. She's pregnant. And Judah, what does Judah go? Haul that woman out and kill her. She's a s- promiscuous woman. Right? Like, and so they're going to bring her out and burn her. And so what does she do? She goes and gets the staff, and she sends it to Judah and says, this is the man who's the father of the child. See if you recognize this. Okay, now here's the key point. You know what he says? You know what he says? She is more righteous than me because I wouldn't give my third son to her as her husband. Now think about, think about that. Think about the morality of that. Judah realizes 
that her non-consensual procreative sex with him that was prostitution, that that, that is morally more praiseworthy. That's, that's not as bad as him withholding his son from her. That's how absolutely central this was to the fundamental social justice of the ancient world and the care of destitute women. Okay? Very central. So when they bring this up, they know Jesus isn't going to back down on it. And both of the Leverett marriage examples in the Bible, this is interesting. Both of them produce children that are in the line of Jesus. Genesis is really interesting. You get that crazy, like Tamar has sex with her father-in-law. All that, that's the line that produces Jesus. One chapter later, you have Joseph, the great son, becomes two tribes. That Jesus is not through that line. He's through the Tamar and Judah line. And then later on in Ruth chapter 4, Ruth, this destitute foreign woman, but who had married an Israelite, so she had the right to be redeemed, but, nobody, but the closest redeemer wasn't willing. He wanted the field that went along with, with Naomi, the widow, but he didn't want Ruth as a wife. So when Boaz says, well, there's a field, you know, if you redeem, if you redeem our brother's, our brother's field, um, you know, you're closer than me, so you can do it. And the guy goes, sure, I'll get it. I'll take a, I'll take a free field. That sounds awesome. He's like, well, there's also Mahalon's wife. He died, and you have to take her and have children for his line. And therefore, that field won't be your children's field. It will be her line's field, and it will be for them. And he goes, oh, well, then I can't. I can't possibly. And so Boaz marries her, and that becomes the line of Jesus the Messiah. Okay? So there's a lot cooking in this. There's two Leverett marriages in Jesus' line. And so they bring this, and then, I mean, they probably don't know that, but they bring this up and they're like, Jesus, what do you say? And Jesus, it's just, Jesus doesn't attack their conception of leverage marriage at all. He attacks their conception of the resurrection. He's like, you guys, you just have no imagination. That's the problem. You just have no imagination. Like, all you can imagine is this. There's seven brothers, one woman. They all marry her in succession. None of them have kids. And then it's the resurrection, which you're assuming is just like now. With all, the, with all the jealousies and problems and whatever, and that we must live in married families in heaven or whatever. And so you, you just think that the doctrine of the resurrection is ridiculous because you think that's going to be awkward. That's your argument. Right? That's going to be sufficiently awkward that the resurrection has to be ridiculous. And he's like, you guys just have, you just, you really can't imagine a world where jealousy dies, can you? You just can't even imagine it. You so, you so want to think it down the lines of your own sinful nature and your unloving spirit that you can't, you can't even conceive of a world that isn't based in basic family structures where we're all equally the children of God in immediate presence to himself. You can't imagine a world in which we could look at something that would have created awkwardness and be so released of that to just, to just look at your brother and be like, he, just, he was just doing his duty. I don't have any jealousy about that. And we're here now. I mean, you can't, even, you can't even imagine it, and that's the problem. Because you're, you can't open your mind to God, the only, you're using all your imagination on the problem. You don't like the Pharisees. They're your rivals. They believe in the resurrection, so you're not going to— and all your creative energy is spent on how they're wrong and how you're right. And it's just narrowing you down and narrowing you down. You can't even think wide enough to see that God is big enough to create a heaven in which an awkward situation isn't awkward. But, okay, so what does that mean for us? Well, look, we have, we have very parallel ideas 
about heaven, right? Like, have you ever heard this one? You know, we're just going to be in heaven, like playing harps or singing to God forever. I mean, I don't know about you, that sounds really, 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 really boring, right? You've heard heard that one, right? Heaven sounds boring. Or have you heard this one? Is there going to be sex in heaven? Right? Both of those total failures of imagination. Total failures of imagination. You just can't conceive of the idea that there could be an eternal place that really is a perpetual novelty, that it really is great the whole time. We just—why? Because we're so stuck in the undulation of this life where we're happy, we're depressed. We're happy—we're excited, we're bored. We're excited, we're bored. We're constantly wishing we could have more leisure and had more money to buy more possible things that could bring us a little bit of interest for a little while. And then we think of just singing forever or something, which is, of course, totally wrong biblically. But just that idea, and we're like, that's just going to be boring. Total failure of imagination. Or is there going to be sex in heaven? Seriously? Okay, I've thought that. I have. Um, I've had some really weird discussions with people about that that I won't bring up now. But, but the, here's the bottom. I remember listening to Peter Kreeft, who's a philosopher at uh, Boston, or Boston College on this, and he said, he said, the issue with sex is that there probably will be gender in heaven. So it's a real question. And he goes, here's the issue. Whenever people are really concerned about that idea, it's because they really can't conceive of a place in which the pleasures of sex will become totally obsolete. They can't conceive of a place where talking with someone will be so amplified by the presence and glory of God and so undisturbed by sin and jealousies and problems that just talking with someone will be a hundred times better than having sex. Good sex. Just, imp- it's impossible, I mean, impo- it's impossible to conceive of, right? Especially if it's been a while. You know? But, what is that? That is a failure of imagination. It is a failure of imagination to not be able to conceive of a place in which God is so creative and so good and so glad to pour out bliss and joy and gladness and goodness and creativity that we have not yet imagined on all of us all the time together and with himself where sin is totally gone and to where the confusion and the frustration and the anxiety is put away forever that something like sex would just be totally irrelevant, just escapes us. And it's because we spend all of our imagination obsessing about sex rather than the, how big God is. And that matters because that's why we find celibacy unthinkable. That's the reason we think God's command to unmitigated celibacy or completely giving ourselves to one person in monogamy and marriage is totally outdated, impossible to live out, and should be scrapped as soon as possible. That's why we believe that. It's a—all these moral consequences will roll out for one little failure of imagination that we don't even see. I mean, how could the Sadducees have thought, Right, the Pharisees totally have misrepresented the resurrection because they never studied it on their own. They just found their idea distasteful. And Jesus goes, look, it's right there in the Bible. If you just would have flipped to Genesis, you could have picked it up. So here's my closing question to you. 
What can't you imagine? Let me show you this graph really fast. We have this imagination problem partly because we spend all our imaginative energies on our problems rather than on thinking them through with God and with Scripture towards solutions. The problem is, is that by the time we get to the point, by the time we get to the point where we thought, oh, it's such a big problem, 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 we're emotionally exhausted, and the problem looks so big that we give up trying to solve it. It's a double catch, emotionally. And so, we give this little half-hearted effort, so either we have a little pat answer that nobody will believe, but we're just going to be in denial about. So, until my life gets hard, I'm not going to really handle the problem of suffering in God. I'll just say something like, well, God's, everything's going to work out in heaven, right? Which, that's true, but it's, I mean, can you work that out a little bit, right? You know? So, boom, or you just go, well, I can't really answer it. I tried. Did you read anything? I read, I read part of the introduction of C.S. Lewis's problem of pain. Like, like nine pages. I mean, he really should have gotten to it. You know, or I tried, but I had a toothache. You know, that sort of thing. Um, but we've, I mean, we've got to face this issue of if it is fundamentally human to fail to imagine and to have our minds open to everything but God and his solution to these things, then there are probably scads of things bouncing around in your head and my head. I could name 10 or 12 right now. Bouncing around where I have spent and you have spent the vast majority of your imagination and open-mindedness on building the problem. Partly because that's just emotionally what we're prone to do because we're anxious creatures. And partly because the bigger the problem is, the more space there is for you to do whatever you want. It's ultimately a self-justifying defense mechanism. If there's no solution to the problem of suffering, and I'm suffering, then God could hardly be upset with me if I do whatever I want, because I was driven to it by my answerless suffering, right? If God is ridiculous in his sexual commandments, then he could hardly be upset if I do whatever I want with my sexuality because I was driven to it by my, this unanswerable problem, and so on. So I think we've got to face, what is it we can't answer? Is it why God doesn't make himself more visible? Is it why does an all-powerful God allow suffering or allow my suffering? Or how could God demand there be just one way to him? Or um, why does God say complete obedience is a real way to human freedom? Or why does God require chastity, um, absolute chastity, or unmitigated legal monogamy? Or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the bottom line is, what can't you imagine? If you can't see that as a sunset rather than steamy dog poo, it's a failure of imagination. And if we don't deal with the what am I, what is not really a problem with God? What is not an unanswerable question, but an unimaginable answer? And where have I failed in my imagination such that I've becoming more and more self-justified, less and less teachable, more and more like these Sadducees, in the process of how I think about God? Because I'm, I'll go to my Bible, I'll do the research, but when it comes to giving myself to being open-minded toward him, the trustworthy one and the teaching one, 
I'm just not doing it in this area. When I was at, let me try to bring this full circle um, to my voice therapy appointment, which I don't think I've been speaking right this whole time. Um, Need me pee pee. Um, Throughout the my, my time with her, um, you, know, I, I, you know, I'd laugh and I'd be like, oh gosh. And she'd be like, listen, um, I promise I know what I'm doing. I promise this is going. So there were all these kind of assurances. And if you read in the Bible, God's truthfulness is a huge theme in the Bible. This is going somewhere. Stick with this. Listen. Take it to heart. But you know what was the most helpful? She'd been through it. She was an opera singer. She was a voice major. She was studying in Italy. And she developed throat issues, and she had to go through a long period of voice therapy, which is what got her in the field. And um, she said, it took me forever to do, relearn these patterns, and I had to, like, I'd be in conversations, and I'd, wait, I'd say, stop, mm, okay, I'm ready to talk again. Like, she said, it's, it was a long process, but I got through it. I know how to take you through this, right? She just kind of volunteered that at some point, which is, I was like, okay, I, I wasn't mistrusting you all that much, but okay. Um, but that means a lot to me as somebody who's trying to follow her as a teacher. And it matters to me that all through the life of Jesus, he was constantly demonstrating that his imaginational energy, his open-mindedness was towards the Father. He was completely rooted in real life. He, it wasn't one of these things who said like dumb aphorisms that were like vaguely religious and that didn't mean anything. He was totally rooted in real life. But his imagination was always open towards the Father. And as the one who did not need to be taught, he was incredibly humble. Every step of the way, he was this humble one. And so what he's asking us to be, he, he showed us exactly how to do it. He's not just the teacher. He, as the teacher, showed us literally how to be the student to the point of the humiliation of the cross, which God explicitly says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, was partly that way because we couldn't even imagine the glory of what he would do for us. That passage, do you remember that passage that says, no mind has, no eye has seen or ears heard, no mind can see what God has prepared for those who love him. We always think that's about heaven, right? It's not about heaven. It's about how nobody could have imagined that God would justify himself and us through the sacrifice of the cross, through the intersection of mercy and justice on a tree, in a place, through the life of a man. We never—and he did that to save us, to teach us, and to explode wide open our imagination of what God has prepared for those who love him and would allow him to teach them. And one of the three things is we have to open our imagination to him We have to open our mind to him. It is, without that peace, it can't happen. And with that peace, it will happen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what we get to see, hopefully, in this passage. I pray that you'd press home uh, what you agree with through your spirit. I pray that you'd let pass away what you don't. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that would imagine Um, that would use our imaginative creativity not just against you, but for you and to be open to you, and that we would experience the transformation of mind so that we would know what your good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And that we would know the power of God and the scriptures, as Jesus said in this passage.
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand for the benediction?